0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour. Welcome
0: to the History Extra podcast, fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In 1944... Against a backdrop of D-Day preparations and war fatigue, Scottish medium Helen Duncan made newspaper headlines when she became the last woman to be convicted and imprisoned in Britain under the 1735 Witchcraft Act. But could Hellish Nell, as she was often known, really conjure up the dead? Or was she merely a talented fraudster? Professor Malcolm Gaskill spoke to Charlotte Hodgman about Helen Duncan's extraordinary story and sensational legal trial. So Malcolm, it's lovely to have you with us today. I've been really looking forward to this podcast. Helen Duncan is someone I've been interested in for quite a while, actually. She's a very fascinating character. Perhaps you could just introduce her to to our listeners who, who might not know who she was.
1: Okay, so Helen Duncan is a spiritualist medium of the 20th century, but she's not an ordinary clairvoyant. She's a, a materialization medium, and what materialization means is that she claimed that she could actually clothe the invisible spirits of the dead in this mysterious substance that came out of her body called ectoplasm, so that actually the spirits were visible and that the friends and the bereaved loved ones often could actually see their dead relatives and friends, kind of not quite in the flesh, but certainly clothed in this, in this ectoplasm. She's a very ordinary person, but she has this very extraordinary time in the 20th century. And, you know, she's one of those ordinary lives that for a brief period kind of rises up, comes into the, the limelight and then disappears again. So she's an ordinary person in extraordinary times, but she has this incredible supernatural claim which many people believe in and many people are skeptical about. But of course, it gets her in actually into a lot of trouble because, as often happens in the history of witchcraft, although she's not actually a witch, but the fact that she does actually come into the attention of the authorities who use the Witchcraft Act against her, then actually, you know, it's uh, what you see as a woman delving into the occult and finding herself on the wrong side of the law because of it.
0: Going back to the beginning of her story, she was born in Scotland. So when do we sort of see first her supposed paranormal talents?
1: Yeah, she's born in Scotland. She's born in a place called Callender in Perthshire, right at the end of the 19th century. And even as a child, she displays gifts for the Highland Second Sight, this Highland tradition where she would make prophecies and predict things. And that slightly drew her school friends towards her and also kind of repelled them. She was a mysterious person, even from childhood, I think. And in fact, she acquired the nickname Hellish Nell, which is the title of my book. That's not a a term which was used about her later on. It was a term from her childhood. That's how she was known locally, because there was something strange and different about her. And then into her teenage and early 20s, she develops these powers, but she meets her future husband, Henry Duncan, who is a spiritualist, and he persuades her that this isn't just the Highland Second Sight, that actually what she's doing is spiritualism. And of course, spiritualism is this sort of alternative religion which is developed in particularly in England and America. From the middle of the 19th century, but is thriving, especially in the First World War and post-First World War period, because of the huge loss of life. So that she rises to a kind of local prominence amongst spiritualists in Scotland at exactly the kind of time that people are starting to have to deal publicly and privately with the trauma of having lost so many men in the First World War. So the timing of this is not coincidental. But in spiritualist law, Spiritualists develop their skills over time in private circles. So people would meet in, their, in other people's houses, sit in a circle and develop their skills. And this can go through clairvoyance, clairaudience, so hearing the spirits, to moving objects, to automatic writing, to writing things down that spirits supposedly send from the other side. And then some spiritualist medium, spiritualists of the time would have told you, would actually get into a kind of physical mediumship, so the production of ectoplasm. And then the top of the tree in those achievements would be actual materialisation, where the production of ectoplasm could be so prodigious and focused that it could actually make these spirits of the dead visible. That's certainly what believers at the time believed in. And there were many of them.
0: Before we go any further, perhaps you could just explore kind of what actually people thought ectoplasm was. I'm sure there's lots of listeners thinking, what on earth is that? How do people believe it manifested?
1: Well, there's a a huge amount of debate about this. And it's not just the spiritualists who we need to include in the story, it's the psychical researchers. And there is some overlap between them, but the psychical researchers tend to be rather sceptical, but also rather hopeful that there will be some mediums out there who are real, and therefore that they can test this production of ectoplasm under laboratory conditions. And there's even at this time, remember this is 100 years ago now, that there were those that said, you know, maybe this is an unexplored dimension of physics, and if actually we can harness and we can test and we can prove these powers, then someone's going to get a Nobel Prize. Seems ridiculous to us now. But at the time, the door of possibility was still ajar. In fact, in this period, I think it was actually wide open. But the spiritualists and the psychic researchers have all sorts of theories. The psychic researchers want to get samples of ectoplasm that they can test. They do do this. It's never promising. But then they say things like, well, this is blotting paper or this has got egg white in it or it's just a piece of cloth and so on. And the spiritualists will always say, oh, well, yes, it was, you know, we we obviously had sceptics in the room and obviously you never get good results from the spirits when so there's always a kind of way out of the logic. You never disprove the existence of spiritualism, even of materialisation mediumship, because the spiritualists would say, well yes, Mrs. Duncan, whoever the medium was, you know, she was, she, she just wasn't having a good day. Or that there was so much pressure being put on her. Of course, sometimes they have to fake it because, you know, people depend on them and they need results. But deep down, there's a real materialization medium there. So the spiritualists and the psychic researchers theoretically say that the, the ectoplasm is a kind of organic plastic substance it's in the area of kind of substances of reproduction, I suppose. It flows from orifices different The nose or the mouth, sometimes even the ears, comes out of the body and sort of swirls around, but it has a kind of intelligent design within it. But the truth is, nobody knows. And of course, nobody ever does know because, you know, Sorry, spoiler here, but I don't actually believe in spiritualism and I don't actually believe in the reality of ectoplasm but I do as historians should believe very deeply that people did believe it and of course that's what I'm studying here same as with the history of witchcraft.
0: When do we see Helen's career taking more of a commercial turn because she was sort of doing this for family and friends when do we see her you know taking to the stage and actually um, people paying to come and see her?
1: This is sort of from the end of the 1920s into the early 1930s. And she goes from having a kind of a local, rather private, almost a kind of community following, into something that's not quite national yet, but certainly is regional, maybe even national within Scotland. She gets a, a newspaper column in a newspaper called the People's Journal, where she possibly they're kind of ghost written stories, I think, probably written by her husband, that talk about her adventures in the spiritualist world and people that she's helped. They get a photographer to take pictures of her. So I think this makes her rather well-known, certainly in Dundee, possibly even beyond Dundee, but this is still the growth of her reputation. But she does come to the attention of spiritualists, and the spiritualists quickly come to the attention of the psychic researchers, not just in Scotland, but in London. So that by the early 1930s, she's being invited to come to London, to go to the London Spiritualists' Alliance, to perform there, Now, that's not a psychic research organization, but there are psychic research organizations like the Society for Psychical Research or the National Laboratory for Psychical Research. These are organizations that are very busy in London in the early 1930s, partly to put on seances for spiritualists, paying guests, but also like the National Laboratory for the purposes of study, where ectoplasm can be produced under kind of pseudo-laboratory conditions, but with more of a sceptical eye than was certainly true at the seances at the London Spiritualist Alliance. And so because of this, she comes to the attention of the psychic researchers and of the spiritualists, but she also starts to come to the attention of the law, because as soon as money changes hands, there will be those that say, this is fraud, and if you're taking money off someone, this is deception in order to obtain money by false pretenses. And so that by 1933 in Scotland, the police are already taking an interest in it.
2: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com historyextra history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
0: Park that for now and we'll come back to the trial and everything that comes after. But perhaps you could just set the scene for us as to what would people expect when they went to see Helen in action?
1: So some people go because they're absolutely committed, I should say, first of all. Some people just say it's like going to the spooks. That's something you, you could say that in the early 1930s. And I think people would understand what you meant. Because there are a lot of spiritualist mediums and they all work in rather the same way. So the premises were typically very modest, it would be somebody's back room, it might be a back room of a village hall or something like that, somebody's attic, any kind of space where you can make the room dark, and of course in wartime they have blackout curtains and this really helps, so you make the room very dark, you have a corner of the room which is known as the cabinet, and that's where you set up a curtain with a chair inside it, and then the chairs would be spread in a sort of little arc in front of the cabinet, And there would be often a gramophone to play records to raise the vibrations, they would spiritualists would say, to get the right kind of atmosphere. And there would be one red bulb, one red light. So imagine a bit like on a submarine, you know, that kind of red light so that you can just about see, but it doesn't really illuminate things. They are the perfect conditions. People would have come in, they would have arranged themselves, be told to be quiet and not to kind of interfere in any way in anything, just sit there and watch. And then the music would start, the medium would come out, go into the cabinet, sit down, go into trance, and the curtains would close. And then when the vibrations were raised, then hopefully the cabinet curtains would open and then the seance would begin.
0: And Helen actually performed with two spirit guides, didn't she, who conveyed some of these messages?
1: She does. Materialisation mediums always do this. There's always has to be an intermediary, somebody who will... You know, in these, you know, you've got to remember these are sort of quasi-religious performances, but they're actually a bit more like also like variety shows. There's an intersection between formal worship and the sort of things that people were familiar with at, at music hall or kind of end of the pier type theatrical productions. The seance, like those shows, needed a master of ceremonies, and that's really what the spirit guide is. So, if it was one of Helen Duncan's seances, the first thing you would do is hear the voice of her spirit guide, whose name was Albert Albert Stewart. And he had a kind of backstory, whether it's true or not. It's up to listeners to decide for themselves. But Albert would come out and he would say, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And then there would be a murmured, good evening, Albert. And then he would say, thank you all for coming here this evening. And Mrs. Duncan is here behind me and in trance and so on. And then he would say, you know, I've got an old lady here, who maybe died with her. And then it starts, you know, it starts this dialogue with the audience to see what they will Recognize from what he says, but of course, this isn't just a message from beyond. Because actually, once Albert recedes, then you start to get ectoplasm visible, glowing, sort of luminous white flow like a kind of a slow, kind of snowy flow. So, I'm trying to paint the picture uh, so you can imagine it. And that this would people reported gradually take shape rising up out of the ground into the physical form of a person that someone in the audience would actually recognize and then when it was over they would say goodbye dearie or whatever and then sink back into the floor so this is again you know not me saying that i believe in ectoplasm but this is what many 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 people reported seeing there's a huge amount of emotional expectation in this room And it's a very difficult subject because, of course, many people would say, well, these poor people were being exploited. On the other side, from the spiritualist perspective, these were people who were desperate to be reunited with their loved ones. And so they bring a huge amount of emotional expectation to the room and often leave kind of ecstatic with joy that they had one last meeting, perhaps with somebody that they'd loved and lost. I mean, in the book, I try to play it mostly fairly straight from the perspective of the viewer, but it should be very plain that I don't actually believe that what they were seeing was something coming from the other side. So how do they do it? I mean, if we want to think about as almost like a conjuring trick, which of course the critics of spiritualism say that that's all it is, and that when Helen Duncan is first charged with fraud in Edinburgh in 1933... The woman who sets up the sting operation is a woman called and Mall, who's a psychical researcher, and she has some photographs taken of herself showing how this fakery was done. And one of the things she shows is that there's another little spirit guide Helen Duncan has is a small girl called Peggy, and she shows that Peggy was just a small like stocky net vest which was being dangled in front Helen Duncan on her knees in a black dress, jiggling this vest, and that was Peggy. And then she was doing voices. Helen Duncan certainly could do a whole range of accents and voices. And the other thing sml shows is actually the way that if you draw, if you're wearing a white piece of muslin or some kind of white fabric, because this is often concealed and brought into the seance room, if you've got that over your head and you bring the dark seance curtains around you, you can adjust your shape and size, even your height, by putting your arm in the air. With this material over, you can suddenly make yourself six foot four if you want to. Anybody could. Kneel down, you can be a child, and so on and so on. So it's really about altering the the balance between light and dark in the way that you appear. And then, of course, that's what the audience see. But it has to be done with some kind of concealed fabric, which is brought in by some means into the seance room.
0: And it's even kind of instances of of mediums regurgitating cloth and and things like that, isn't there?
1: Well, there's a huge debate starts about this, about whether or not Helen Duncan is a regurgitator. So the most famous ghost hunter and psychic researcher of the day, who runs the National Laboratory of Psychic Research, is called Harry Price. There's a name we've kind of forgotten now, but he was extremely well known in his day. He was a very prolific journalist and writer and and self-promoter. He was a showman himself who had that kind of grain of belief in this, but mostly made his reputation by being sceptical of everything that ever happened. So Harry Price really promotes this idea that Helen Duncan does this through regurgitation. And he writes a book called Regurgitation and the Duncan Mediumship, where he shows that actually that this could be possible because there are stage regurgitators who do the same thing. But actually many others say this is just nobody could possibly swallow this much fabric. And so, without going into too much detail, the preferred interpretation was that the fabric was concealed elsewhere in her body. Now, she is actually typically searched before the seance, but the women who are searching her are themselves spiritualists. And how thoroughly she was actually being searched is, a, is another question. But without doubt, she is very artfully concealing this fabric in, around her body in a way that probably she probably actually isn't swallowing it, I think.
0: She strikes me as quite a sad figure, actually, and not a particularly happy woman. I mean, I think from what you write in the book, she kind of emerges from these performances in a pretty bad state.
1: I think she's she's an extremely vulnerable, traumatised, conflicted woman. The book is about, on one level, the tragedy of the 20th century because, of course, the two wars loom large, very large, in this story. And then there is the personal tragedy of her life, and of a woman who is, I think, abused and manipulated, and naturally, psychologically, frail. You know, it's not really the historian's job to psychoanalyse dead figures but at the same time it would be really obtuse i think uh, insensitive as well to ignore the fact that she is a r- very damaged and confused person so i think her life is absolutely steeped in sadness of her own existence i mean it, you know in, in modern terms she is a sort of she has intense bursts of what we might once called hysteria and aggression and other times she seems incredibly meek you know, one might almost think she has multiple personalities and that she can enter the séance room seeming extremely down. And then, of course, almost semi-conscious, comatose, but then suddenly burst into life. And one minute she's Albert talking with a kind of Scots-Canadian accent. Next minute she's talking BBC received pronunciation. Then she's doing French and then she's doing, you know, it's... She's... And maybe there's just an extraordinary show, but I think, actually, that there is a line where she may actually believe that she really is manifesting the people that she pretends to be. And this is, in the end, unknowable. And this is why, you know, and it's true, I think, writing any, any book written about the occult and the supernatural, including 70th-century witchcraft, that what we can do historically is present a range of possibilities of what was actually going on here. But I can't really tell you clearly, very clearly, it's one thing or the other. only that I don't believe in spirits. But quite exactly what's, you know, the real mystery is not whether spiritualism is real or not. The real mystery is the same mystery in all past lives that we just don't ever really know who these people were deep down because they take that psychology, that mentality, that emotional inner life, they take it with them to the graves. And in fact, we're not even very good at understanding it even in the people that we know when they're alive. So, how much harder with the dead
0: so she 's got her career as a medium she 's been fined a couple of times hasn 't she for fraud what 's her downfall because Harry Price plays quite a, a key role in this doesn 't he
1: yeah I mean Harry Price is undoubtedly her nemesis, he knows it, she knows it there 's a bit of cat and mouse between them, but of course, she's drawn to the fame that he can provide, and so is the husband i mean Henry is you know has to be included in this because he is the ambitious manipulator of her career and of course there is money in this they're not a wealthy family henry has been invalided out of the first world war helen is mostly the breadwinner and so the opportunity to make some money from the research and the spiritualist societies in london is just far too great you know they they're just drawn to it and that's why they go to london So she is working very hard, and I think this has a huge impact on her health. I mean, you talked a bit about her mental health, but her physical health is appalling. She's very overweight, she's diabetic, she has angina, she has all sorts of medical conditions. And she becomes quite quickly exhausted, but she's driven harder and harder, I think almost masochistically, or maybe Sado masochistically, given that Henry is doing this too, to perform and perform and perform. So, in Spiritually So, she's becoming a big draw, you know, she's in demand. And so that by the later 1930s, she's actually very well known indeed.
0: What happened to actually get her arrested and put up for trial?
1: Well, she starts talking about shipping. So, it's really the period between 1941 and 1944. In 1941, it's it's a bit of a long story and it has many different kind of perspectives and interpretations, but long story short... She predicts or she says something about the sinking of HMS Hood, it's like the the jewel in the crown of the Royal Naval Fleet at that time, and then HMS Barham in November 1941. Now, the sinking of the Barham was a catastrophic thing. There aren't that many big battleships that the British Navy has, so that when one gets sunk, this is massive news, in fact the Barham explodes it's one of the few sinkings that's actually captured on camera so people actually ultimately get to see it on newsreel it has it's it's sort of a wound in the national psyche so that helen duncan does comment on these two sinkings and as relates to the barum she supposedly brings a sailor back with ectoplasm materialized at a seance in portsmouth and what happens after this is that she starts being watched she comes to the attention of the Admiralty, she comes to the attention of MI5, and the MI5 in wartime is, it's just part of normal policing, because it's obviously incredibly important, you know, that state secrets are kept. And then this becomes worse as you're getting closer towards D-Day, so from the end of 1943 into early 1944, that you really don't want anybody anywhere saying anything about anything. And so all sorts of fairly innocuous, in fact, often very innocuous people, completely blameless, start getting watched and files are opened on them and so on. And so that actually to start in the run up to D-Day, to have someone who's been saying things about battleships, even two, three years earlier, is somebody who really should do something about And although I don't, it's not the state comes down on her from above, like, you know, Winston Churchill says, we must do something about this woman, Helen Duncan. It starts at the local level, but it's a story of local policing, which quickly gets out of hand because of the way that the spiritualists react to being attacked in the way that they are through the example of Helen Duncan. The timeline is extremely difficult to determine. When the barham was sunk, there was a feeling that this would be so damaging to public morale that the government put an embargo on the on the news. But they do this very curious thing, and this only came to light a few years ago, that they do actually, the Admiralty writes to the families of all the men who were sunk on the barroom, saying, very sorry, your husband, father, brother has died, but please don't tell anybody. And so that it's only really in early 19. 19- 42 that the news becomes public but of course before then you've got all these hundreds of families in Portsmouth all heavily bereaved so it is a secret but obviously in Portsmouth everybody knew because you cannot be bereaved in that way and keep it yourself so the timeline for the Hood and for the Barham is rather murky and the spiritualists tended to say well, she predicted it beforehand but actually It seems with the Barham, she did it a bit afterwards, but before it became public knowledge. And so the timeline is crucial, but it's extremely difficult to determine. And the way these stories get repeated from the spiritualist always tends towards the miraculous and away from the banal.
0: And the charge against her changes quite a few times. So She's initially arrested under the Vagrancy Act.
1: So there are various possibilities. She isn't actually ever tried for treason but she is charged under the Vagrancy act and under the Witchcraft Act, so the 1735 Witchcraft Act. There's basically been a sting operation, and a local naval officer who goes to the seance decides that there's something wrong about this and we need to do something about it. And so with collaboration with the local police, they do raid this seance, and she's arrested. They say some piece of fabric, which is whisked away, and so they don't have the evidence, the spiritually say. You've got no, excuse the pun, material evidence for this, But, of course, the Witchcraft Act, the clever thing about it is you don't need any evidence. All you need is for the accused person to have attempted to conjure the spirits of the dead. So the the charge is clever because, actually, the the defence is doing the job of the prosecution. Because if you say the defence at her trial is, very simply, Mrs. Duncan is not a fraud. She's a genuine materialisation medium. Well, It was the act of trying to be a materialization medium, which was the crime. The more that the defense say, the more that she's incriminated and that actually the state can't lose. And in fact, the prosecution barrister is an MI5 officer as well as a barrister. And so they have got it really, really, you know, sewn up. But the thing is that the spiritualists say, oh, you know, this was a sledgehammer to crack a nut. And even Churchill does actually send a memo when he finds it saying, what on earth are we doing? This is wartime London. You know, resources are very precious. We're getting jurors, we're tying up jurors at the Old Bailey to prosecute this woman under the witchcraft act. The phrase Churchill uses is, what is this obsolete tomfoolery? And that's all very well. But the problem is that it's spiralled out of control. So it's a case that could have easily been dealt with at Portsmouth Magistrates Court. She would have got a fine as she had been fined before in Edinburgh, and, you know, smack on the wrist and let off. But because the Spiritualist National Union decide to make a big deal of this, they've got some funds, they say, no, we are going to get a barrister who is all spiritualist. He's called Charles Lowsby, another First World War veteran, rather shell-shocked, traumatized, passionate believer in spiritualism, and Lowsby turns it into this great core célèbre, a great crusading campaign. So the Helen Duncan, not all these spiritualists think very highly of her as a person. They often find her rather coarse and rather common. There's a lot of snobbery in this story, but she's a fantastic figurehead to promote their cause in the name of liberty, as they see it, to get the Witchcraft Act and the Vagrancy Act repealed and therefore create freedom of conscience, freedom of worship for spiritualists. So yet again... Helen Duncan is being manipulated and exploited by people who see that they can get something out of who she is. So so as soon as the spiritualists hire this barrister, the Crown says, Okay, well we'll get a barrister too. We'll get a King's Council. So they get this Casey, John Maude, who is also an MI5 officer. And then you've got barristers fighting over this. It's got to go to the Old Bailey. It's it's outgrown its court. And the Crown say, Okay, well, if that's the way you want to play it, we'll do it at the Old Bailey. And of course, there's murder trials going on. There. In fact, the, the prosecuting barrister, John Maud, is simultaneously at the trial under the Witchcraft Act, prosecuting a man for murder and another, and he's running between the courts. I mean, it's kind of chaos. But they are absolutely determined that she will be silenced. And the crucial thing, this is the really important thing about the Witchcraft Act in the end, is that it carries a custodial sentence. And that means that she can be in prison if she's in prison for a number of weeks or months, then actually, you know, she can't be going around talking about shipping. And I do actually think there that the spiritualists claim that they wanted to silence her and shut her up before D-Day is probably right. But that was part of normal policing, as I say, that they were were watching all sorts of people. And before, in the run-up to D-Day, there is an awful lot of, what we would think of as paranoia about anybody who might be somehow communicating to the Germans about where the landing is going to take place.
0: I mean, I can imagine it was a complete media frenzy as well. It was an eight-day trial and wheeling out witnesses for the defence, I'd imagine, you know, people claiming all sorts of things that she'd done for them and in front of them. What was public opinion towards her?
1: A bit of context around this is that this is a point in the war where everybody's really fed up with the war. It's a long way between 1940 and the spirit of the Blitz and kind of Britain keeping calm and carry on. But by 1944, rationing, bombing, men being away. People are, are actually bored as well as terrified of the war. So that to have a witch trial in the newspapers is a fantastically exciting thing. So every day of the trial, there's a great queue. People trying to get... There's no room in the galleries whatsoever. People f- arriving first thing in the morning to queue down the street. Press crowded into the press gallery... The judge saying, I must remind gentlemen of the press, this is not a witch trial, and they go, okay, witch trial, so it still gets problem. I mean, only the Times does a very sober kind of assessment of this and doesn't talk about witchcraft. But, of course, the, the, the popular press make a big deal of it. Of course they do. And so that she is, you know, what she's wearing is described. The paper's describe whether she's fashionable or not and what kind of coat she's wearing and her handbag and her hat. Every little detail, every little thing that they can sensationalise is sensationalised for popular consumers. Cartoonists make jokes about it. There are stage performers. You could make a popular cultural reference to this on stage. Everybody falls about laughing. There's debates, you know, in Cambridge University. And so they, everyone's talking about it for a short period, partly because it's just there's nothing to report but the war and in fact, actually, before d d there's not very much report at all because it's all so hush-hush. Whereas, you know, the, the previous year, capitulation of Italy, um, victory in North Africa, you know, there's been a lot to report. Suddenly it's quiet. And so the newspapers are full of this witch trial, which is totally bizarre, but entirely understandable.
0: Was she at any point asked to perform or recreate any of the scenes that she claims that she could do?
1: Yeah, she is. So Loseby says to the judge, this is the defense barrister, says to the judge, look, we can solve this whole problem. Loseby never, ever quite gets the point. He never gets the point that the more spiritualism you do in court, or the more you talk about Mrs. Duncan's spiritualism, the more likely it is she's going to prison. So he says, look, we can prove that she's a genuine spiritualist medium, materialization medium. She will do a test seance in the court for you. Or... You know, if you want to do it before the judge and the jury privately, we can do that too. So actually, Helen Duncan is not in custody during the trial, so they do actually whisk her off to someone's house, and she supposedly puts on these fantastic, the best ever materialisation sessions, and they go back and say, look, we must let Mrs Duncan perform. But the judge says no. And the judge says no because he says it would turn the court into a kind of, well, I think into a kind of circus but he also says that this is a principle of English law, that she shouldn't be tried by ordeal, because if she's put on there and the spirits don't come, then that would have a negative effect. And that takes you back to the ordeals, judicial ordeals, from actually from the 13th century. They weren't even using them in 17th century. They are actually, and this is one of the, going back to your earlier question, they are actually evoking ideas from the Middle Ages and from the 16th and 17th centuries Because one of the things they do debate, and this is actually more during the appeal than the actual trial, is quite what conjuration means. Because this is a key word in the 1735 Witchcraft Act, pretense to perform, practice conjuration. So they do need to think about what it once meant, think about what it might mean at that time. But this is turned down. But, you know, had had she actually then performed in court and the spirit suddenly flew around the courtroom then she's definitely going down because she has actually conjured spirits by the term of the law.
0: Before Helen, who was the last person to have been tried and convicted under that act?
1: There are various other usages of the Witchcraft Act. In some other cases, the language of the Witchcraft Act. So there is a prosecution of a fortune teller in 1939. It is evoked, I think, again in 1942. So it's not that she's absolutely unique to be using, but the fact is... It's unique that she prosecuted at the Old Bailey and she goes to prison. So you do see, because, of course, the Witchcraft Act has been around since 1735. It is used periodically. It's just that in the age of spiritualism, it just it's pressing the nuclear button against the spiritualists because it carries a uh, custodial sentence. Most spiritualist mediums are simply prosecuted under the Vagrancy Act which had been introduced in the 1820s after the Napoleonic Wars because there were so many returning soldiers who tried to make a living from fortune-telling, just, you know, tramps on the highway. And one of the things they would do was tell fortunes. And so the Vagrancy Act had been introduced to kind of protect middle-class people who might be ripped off by these, uh, you know, these itinerant veteran soldiers. And that's why they keep using it. But actually, really, until Helen Duncan... Nobody's really thinking about putting spiritualist mediums in prison, not quite to the, you know, the extent that she is. So it's not unique, the use of the law, but it's such a cause celebra. And the fact she does go to prison makes it really very exceptional and starts the ball rolling towards the repeal of this law. You know, one of the things that's most offensive about the Witchcraft Act is that it's called the Witchcraft Act. And so that it is repealed ultimately in 1951 by other legislation which no longer makes it illegal to attempt to conjure spirits so spiritualism becomes legal as it were but of course the consumer is still protected the clients are still protected should they be defrauded for money and so they become very cagey about whether or not money changes hands because someone could always claim that they had been deceived and certainly in the the wake of the second world war there are many many letters which were written to the police authorities and to the Home Secretary and they do survive in the National Archives, saying, what were we fighting for? We were surely fighting for freedom. Is the British state going to behave like the Nazis? Are the British police going to be like the Gestapo? And really, the Home Secretary thinks, we can't really have this. We can't win the war and then kind of lose the peace on this moral area about whether or not we persecute people for their religion. We've got to do something about this.
0: Helen, so about six months, does not she, in the end, and she's released from prison. Um, you've mentioned about the repeal of the Act a little bit later on. What else happens as a result of her being imprisoned? Do we see a rise in spiritualism, or are mediums kind of more wary about doing their shows?
1: Well, both. Spiritualism is, during and after, immediately after the Second World War, still extremely popular. There are still many seances. There is still great demand for Helen Duncan's time and her performances. So after she comes out of prison, she says, never again. The family say, never do that again. Her friends within the Spiritualist National Union have to say, you know, you're not going to do it again. And She says, no, and she's straight back on the road because she it's what she does. It's like all of us, you know, in the end, Leopard not changing spots. Her whole life has been spent in this and doing this, and it totally defines her. And so she is back on the road. there is plenty of evidence that she's drinking more and that some of the performances that even quite committed spiritualists go to say are utterly chaotic and they're not in any, they've heard great things about it and they're not in any way persuaded. but of course the, the main spiritualist explanation for this is the poor woman she's lost it she feels in a rather pathetic way that she has to perform for her public, but she can't summon that spiritual power that spiritualists all know is a real thing in the genuine spiritualist medium. That's one of the key explanations. Of course, many others just say she's just a total fraud and she deceives and exploits people. But this is the range of possibilities in how to interpret her life at that time. So she does kind of carry on. But you find that actually that, you know, one of the things about the spiritualist movement is that when it becomes legal, then some of the fire goes out of those really ardent campaigners like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who in the the first half of the 20th century is the most passionate and also well-funded by himself and hugely rich man, passionate uh, campaigner for the freedom of spiritualism. And there are others, there are other figures who are very well-off and very prominent, very influential, who are also committed spiritualists. This is a belief that goes from the top to the bottom. And that's one of the things that makes it so interesting i think as a 20th century phenomenon
0: that was professor malcolm gaskell a revised edition of malcolm's 2001 book hellish nell last of britain's witches has recently been published by penguin thanks for listening to the history extra podcast this podcast was produced by sam leal green